0: Hello and welcome to the Nauticast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast, going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff,
1: better known as Brendan Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin.
0: And welcome to our 42nd episode of the Nauticast entitled Blood Debts, an analysis of A Game of Thrones Tyrion six, in which Tyrion reveals the brutal backstory behind some things to his new friend Bronn before making a bunch of new friends those friends being in quotation marks among the locals this episode is brought to you by all of our small council our hand of the king wolfman zach grand maester timothy w jancy o lady commander of the knight's watch lords commander of the king's guard mark N.; lord travis the investigator master of ships arch june healer of the lesser poxes and ragged michael warden of the north thank you ladies and gentlemen very much thank you as always our spoiler warning as we talk about in all episodes we'll be talking about all published books that is the five novels the three duck and egg novellas histories interviews the wins Winners* sample chapters as well as game of thrones the tv show anything and everything and additionally we wanted to speak briefly that this chapter has a frank discussion about sexual assault and rape in it we will really tried to endeavor to treat these matters with the sensitivity that they require, but we don't want anyone to get blindsided by our discussion, because this is very integral to the chapter itself.
1: Yeah, this is going to be something, of course, that comes up a lot as we start going into the series, and we want to just handle it as best we can, although, as with everything else, we're always interested in your feedback and hearing where we have gone off the rails or said something yeah. you think is worthy of further interrogation or discussion. Please feel free to bring that up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our question this week comes from Sir Josh B, a Sworn Sword, who asks, Hey guys, I just got caught up with the current episodes over the holiday, and I wanted to expand on Manu's question about the Battle of Ice and the Battle of Fire and the Winds of Winter that you answered at the beginning of episode 39. I think there were two or three other conflicts that need to be looked at also. First, we have Egan and the Golden Company battle for Storm's End, probably in the John Con chapter between Ariane 1 and 2. Next, there is the sea battle between Euron and the Ironborn versus the Tyrells and the Redwines, hinted at in the epilogue to A Dance with Dragons and the Forsaken. Lastly, we may see, as I think you have discussed before, in the Winds of Winter prologue, a battle in the Westerlands between the Lannisters escorting Edmure Tully and Jane Westerling to Casterly Rock and the Brotherhood Without Banners slash Lady Stoneheart slash the Blackfish, the Wolfpack, etc. (laughs) I think you covered a lot of this in the Patreon episode about why you think the Winds of Winter was delayed. Have you seen the analysis of what Winds of Winter might look like done by Admiral Curt in his video, How Can the Winds of Winter Fit into the Winds of Winter, regarding the limits of keeping the Winds of Winter to one book. If we can agree on the general analysis he does, and if we have approximately 79 chapters to play around with, how many chapters will be spent on these four to five battles, including the published preview chapters? Three or five for the Battle of Ice, six or more for the Battle of Fire, three or to five in the Stormlands, two to four with Euron, one in the Westerlands, now, that could be a quarter of the book without any POVs from our main characters, all of the Starks and Lannisters and Daenerys, along with the supporting cast POVs like Sam and Davos and Melisandre and Arya. Hoda. I'm sorry, this is probably way too big a topic for a regular <laughs> show question. Hush, hush you. But I've been thinking a lot about what to expect in The Winds of Winter, and Manu's question got me thinking. Well, as our listeners may know, my illustrious co-host has done a lot of great work in writing and thinking <laughs> about The Winds of Winter, in a variety of ways, including essays on the Battle of Fire and Ice, his Winds of Winter resource on all you know, information available pertaining to the release and writing of Winds of Winter, to just talking on Twitter about little chapters and possibilities such as these. So I'm going to turn it over to him. Jeff, tell us all about the battles and the Winds of Winter and how they're going to make this book impossible to publish.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, first, Sir Josh, it's not an impossible question. It's definitely an excellent question that we can answer. We will be brief, but not brief, as we often do on the Not A Cast podcast. But it is an excellent question. You are right in that if you look at it the way you have it structured, that's a quarter of the book right there, right? That's almost 20 chapters of a potential 79 total chapter book that he could have. As you say in, in your question, the Riverlands prologue, the potential ambush that the Brother Without Banners might pull off, that's going to be one chapter, as, as we know, and that will feature uh, Jane Westerling in it, which will be interesting. I am uh, very concerned about her survival.
1: <laughs> no kidding. I, I really like Jane Westerling, and then I really hate her mother, and I fear they're both equally doomed.
0: Yeah. I mean, it would kind of like be a, a gut punch though, if Cybel Spicer survived and Jane Westerling died, I think that, that would be, be the worst. There's a great theory by Steve Atwell, who uh, we'll be talking about at the end of this podcast, so stay tuned, in which he has this idea that Lady Stoneheart will hang Jane Westerling for her quote unquote treason in betraying Robb Stark when in fact she was not betraying Robb Stark whatsoever. I'm not necessarily hundred percent with that theory, but I think it's worth mentioning this as a possibility. Transitioning our attention to some of the other battle chapters, the Battle of Storm's End, one chapter, probably John Connington's first chapter in the book. There's a little bit of backstory in this one in that originally George R. R. Martin was not going to feature a Battle of Storm's End chapter in The Winds of Winter, but at Worldcon in 2011, George R. R. Martin stated that the battle, quote, really should be seen, but he hadn't written that chapter yet. We sure hope he's written that chapter by now. So, transiting on from that, we have the battle between the Reachmen and the Golden Company, which is something that Sir Josh did not mention, but worth talking a little bit about here. That's probably going to be two to four chapters, a mixture of Ariane and John Conington's point of views. And this is a little bit confusing, so just bear with me as I get a little bit into the weeds on things. Please do, sir. So, yeah, I, 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 I do, and, uh, to my detriment, I think. I need to get into a hobby, really, man. I, I feel like I need to like learn how to like ride a unicycle or something like that.
1: I would admittedly love to see that, so I'm not going to stand in your way. <laughs> maybe they'll pick that up.
0: Okay. So because I don't have a hobby, In 2010, George R. Martin indicated that the two Ariane chapters that he wrote for A Dance with Dragons would be cut to the Winds of Winter, where he had thought they were going to be originally before he restructured and brought them back to A Dance with Dragons before cutting them to the Winds of Winter. Again, people who complained about George's progress on A Dance with Dragons and who complain currently about it on the Winds of Winter just realize that that some of these restructurings, these are very complex and very complicated, like the Ariane chapters moving back and forth between Dance and Winds. Anyways, at the time, George stated that, well, now I don't have to write an Ariane's third chapter or complete a partially written chapter from another ambiguous point of view that would complement Ariane's third chapter. And that's, again, a little bit confusing, but the two Ariane chapters are the ones we got as samples in 2013 and 2016, respectively. Actually, it was 2012 and 2016, respectively. As for that partially written, complementary chapter, in my opinion, it's almost certainly a John Connington chapter a different one from his Battle of Storms End chapter. Remember George was writing that blog entry in 2010. He decides to write the Battle of Storms End chapter in 2011. So different John Connington chapters. And then Arianne's third chapter would be after that. So my guess in the chronology for the Battle of Storms End/Stormlands chapters would go something like Arianne 1, then John Connington 1, which I have termed the Stormlord because I think it's a badass title, that is the Battle of Storms End. Ariane 2, which again was a published as a sample in 2016 on Georgia site and still is the current sample up there. Then we have John Connington too, and here I think John Connington is going to be the first person that meets Arianne before she meets Aegon, and he's going to determine that she presents both opportunity and a huge massive fucking problem for Aegon. Yeah, she could bring all those Dornish Spears onto the side of Aegon. The conflict though is over John Connington is really darn set on Aegon marrying Daenerys even by the end of A Dance with Dragons, saying that, you know, we're not going to marry Aegon off to someone else. He needs to be single for when Daenerys Targaryen comes back behind him with her three dragons. But Aegon is going a little bit sideways on Jon Cunnington, so in Ariane 3, I think this is the chapter where Aegon and Arianne meet. Aegon gets all smitten over Ariane. maybe they bang, maybe Aegon promises to marry her if she brings Dornish Spears to Aegon's side. Jon Cunnington would all be angry and Jon Cunnington-like, and I also figured we would see a war council over what to do now that Mace Tyrell and his army have taken the field against Aegon, something that was revealed in Ariane's second chapter, which is that sample chapter that's on George's site again. And then Jon Cunnington 3, we get Westerosi Agincourt, which he did right few years ago now in uh, the Blood of the Conqueror in which I said that the battle between the Reach and the Golden Company would most resemble the Battle of Agincourt from from the 15th century. So that's the Stormlands. Very complex. I apologize if you have any questions. Please don't ask them because I won't be able to answer them and I won't answer them. Battle of Blood, on down into the lower parts of the Reach. One chapter, that is Dan Perry's final chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire. George confirmed that the Forsaken would not be Aaron Greyjoy's only The Winds of Winter chapter, but I think his next one is his final one. And Emmett, you've talked so much about Euron, some Eldritch stuff and things like that, but in my opinion, rip to our moist priest's in his next chapter
1: absolutely i think damp is not long for this world everything about how the forsaken ends with him tied to a prow as a sacrifice in some horrible magic ritual as they sail into battle that's just not the kind of situation you survive especially since aaron doesn't seem to really be connected to any big arc or future role in the story so i think from there sam takes over as our pov on euron's movements that we get those couple aaron chapters and then like a gap in the book where Euron gathers his eldritch energy off page for a while <laughs> and then shows up in Old Town, I think, like near the end of the book. So maybe Sam gets three or four chapters-ish at Old Town before Euron shows up. He has a lot of elements he has to deal with, obviously, being in the Citadel. We got to have some kind of resolution to the faceless man who showed up in Old Town. There's all this stuff about the high towers being up to some weird magic spells. That needs some kind of payoff in the text. So I imagine Sam gets through those and then Euron shows up before we get to the true stars of the Reach plot, who are, of course, my boyfriends, Willis and Garland Terrell. Yes, both. But I agree with you totally about the structure and the battles. I was uh, getting excited again for the oh storyline plot yeah. just listening to you talk about it, because there's all those different character dynamics. As you say, Jon Connington wants young Griff to marry Daenerys, and he also, he has a thing about Elia Martell. Yeah. He talks about how like he was just weak and unworthy of Rhaegar, because I should have been the one to marry him. <laughs> Seeing another Martell woman show up to seduce his perfect prince, his Rhaegar son, that's got to like, set off all the... Quite literal bells in John Connington's head, so he's he's gonna freak out. John Connington and Ariane are not gonna get along at all, especially since Ariane thinks she might try to seduce him, which that's gonna go well. (laughs) So I'm very much looking forward to that dynamic, and I agree with you saying about the kind of the bouncing back and forth structure. That's how you cut down on chapter counts to a certain amount. Neither of them needs too many chapters, right? Because you're, you're always alternating with the other. You had
0: brought up, Sir Josh, in, in your question about Admiral Kurd, who's a, a friend of ours, and his video, which we do highly, highly recommend people check out, How Can the Winds of Winter Fit into the Winds of Winter, in which he does a fantastic, splendid analysis of all the things that would go into actually putting the book together and like how George can kind of pare down the material he might have to fit into a book that might be known as the Winds of Winter. And ultimately he comes down on the side that probably can't be done unless you make like very drastic significant cuts,
1: which George has, doesn't have a record necessarily of doing. So thank you so much, Sir Josh, for the question. We can only hope George takes Jeff's sage advice <laughs> as he always does. As we creep closer and closer towards
0: the Feast for Crows or an introduction of Your On Great Joy, just know it's like we're just gonna be such unbearable assholes by the time we get to book four of the series.
1: Oh yeah, I already have like half the doc for Euron's introduction planned out. And <laughs> that's trouble because that's also the chapter where Victorian becomes a POV and I have so much to say about that because <laughs> he's my sweet idiot child. So that's going to be a long episode for sure. It will That,
0: But this episode is not about the Winds of Winter. We are still in a Game of Thrones right now and we are talking about a fantastic chapter. I'll just say that up front. A Game of Thrones Tyrion 6. And here is its synopsis. Tyrion and Bron take refuge off the high road and prepare for a long, cold night in the mountains. But Tyrion is acting all Tyrion-like, gathering firewood for the evening. And Bronn is acting all Bronn-like, wondering what the fuck Tyrion is doing, thinking to start a fire up here. He wants to survive the journey, not get himself killed by the mounted clansmen. And how would you hope to do that? Tyrion asks, looking for more firewood. Well, Bron's going to sneak his way through the high road, riding hard by night and sheltering during the day. Sounds like a good plan, right? <laughs> no. Tyrion retorts that they'll end up taking that they'll end up taking their horses over cliffs or killing them in the process, and they aren't going to last long on foot. Oh, and the clansmen almost certainly know that they're here already. So Bronn, you'll end up dying, and Tyrion, he's gonna end up not burying him if he ends up dying. So go hunt Bronn and bring back some supper, will you? Bronn threatens to abandon Tyrion by his fire, but Tyrion is frankly unalarmed. While Bronn would let Tyrion die if he saw the prophet in it, the dwarf is much more valuable alive. In essence, if Bronn lets Tyrion die, he won't get paid, and Bronn's gotta get paid. Tyrion saw that when Bronn stood for him at his trial by combat. Duty? Honor? Friendship? What's that to you? No, no, no. Don't trouble yourself. We both know the answer. Still, you're not stupid. Once we reached the Vale, Lady Stark had no more need of you. But I did. And the one thing the Lannisters have never lacked for is gold. When the moment came to toss the dice, I was counting on your being smart enough to know where your best interests lay. Happily for me, you did. Bron grumbles a bit, saying, okay, yeah, sure, I guess. He's Tyrion's man, but he ain't no toady. Of course you aren't, Bron. But if Bron was ever tempted to betray Tyrion by selling him out, the dwarf would match any price any of his would-be enemies would offer him. Mm-hmm, sure, we'll talk about that. Bron heads off to hunt and returns with a goat. The boys roast it over a fire and enjoy it. Oh, and Tyrion, by the way, what's your plan for keeping us all alive when the mountain clansmen come? Oh, about that. uh, Tyrion doesn't really have much of a plan. Sorry about that. He has kind of a hope. He's going to roll the dice again, with their lives as the stake. And what if they somehow survive their journey? What will Tyrion do then? Oh, a whore and a feather bed and a flagon of wine for a start. Tyrion held out his trencher and Bronn filled it with meat. And then to Casterly Rock or King's Landing, I think. I have some questions that want answering concerning a certain dagger. Wait, wait. Tyrion wasn't behind the dagger attack against Bran? Of course he wasn't, you puddle of illiteracy. Tyrion wonders where the clansmen are, and Bronn thinks that they suspect a trap. So Tyrion starts to whistle, the seasons of my love. You see, this was a tune that Tyrion was intimately familiar with. The first girl he ever slept with sang the song to him. And now we get perhaps the most significant part of Tyrion's backstory. His marriage to Tysha. Some thirteen years or so before Tyrion was on the high road with Braun, Jamie and Tyrion were riding in the westerlands from Lannisport when they came across a girl who was under attack by men. Jamie chased the men off and rode after to pursue, but meanwhile Tyrion comforted the girl, bathing and feeding her in a nearby inn. There he learned her name, Tysha, a crofter's daughter, and he lost her virginity to her. She lost hers to him too. And after, she sang Seasons of My Love. And then the bombshell. Tyrion didn't just bed Tysha he married her. Bronn is in frank disbelief. A Lannister of Casterly Rock married a crofter's daughter? Absurdly enough, Tyrion did, having bribed a septum to officiate. But then Tywin found out from that Septon after he sobered up, and Tywin meted out a horrific punishment on Tyrion for his quote-unquote crime. And because I am firmly in the camp that Tywin is one of the worst people in all of A Song of Ice and Fire and that his crimes really get way overlooked by the fandom. And furthermore, I really also believe that the crimes of Tywin's magnitude should not be papered over. I'm going to speak the full summary of what happened. So the quote is, first, he made my brother tell the truth. The girl was a whore, you see. Jamie arranged the whole affair, the road, the outlaws, all of it. He thought it was time I had a woman. He paid double for a maiden knowing it would be my first time. After Jamie had made his confession to drive the lesson home, Lord Tymon brought my wife in and gave her to his guards. They paid her fair enough, a silver for each man. How many whores command that price? He sat me down in the corner of the barracks and bade me watch. And at the end, she had so many silvers, the coins were slipping through her fingers and rolling on the floor. She... The smoke was stinging his eyes. Tyrion cleared his throat and turned away from the fire to gaze out into darkness. Lord Tywin had me go last, he said in a quiet voice, and he gave me a gold coin to pay her because I was a Lannister and worth more. <sighs> it's, I don't know, man. It's so utterly wretched and evil what Tywin did to Tysha. And, and again, we'll talk a little bit more about Tyrion's more complex role in the affair. But seriously, Tywin, from the bottom of both Emmett's and my heart, fuck you. Damn straight. But now Tyrion is sleepy. Bronn says he'll take first watch. As Tyrion sleeps, he has a nightmare about the sky cell. He awakens to Bronn's urgent low voice. Shadows are approaching from around the campsite. The mounted clansmen have arrived. Tyrion offers to share the goat that they're eating, but one of the clansmen tells Tyrion that it's their goat. Their mountain. Tyrion asks who they are. When you meet your gods, say it was Gunthor, son of Gurn, of the Stone Crows, who sent you to them. The clansman draws his knife, and Shagga, son of Dolph, joins the other clansmen. Tyrion introduces himself, saying that he'll pay the clansmen for the goat. They have silver anyways. Well, that silver now belongs to the clansmen, though. It's their mountain, remember? And so too the horses, their armor, and swords. The only price they have to pay is their lives. And how would Tyrion like to die? In my own bed, with a belly full of wine and a maiden's mouth around my cock at the age of 80, Tyrion snarks. Yeah, yeah, Tyrion, he's kind of brave there in that moment. And the clansmen kind of recognize that bravery and wit. They'll keep Tyrion alive to kind of entertain everyone. But Bronn, yeah, he's still fucking dead. Bronn prepares to defend himself, but Tyrion starts talking again. Talking about how the clansmen aren't really all that brave and their weapons are shit. His father's blacksmiths can shit better steel than they currently own. Shagga gets pissed at Tyrion, threatening to chop off Tyrion's manhood and feed it to the goats. Ah, I wondered, are we ever going to hear Shagga say that again? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a time or two. But Gunther would hear Tyrion out. Will Tyrion give the clansmen swords, lances, and mail? All that and more, Guntharsson of Gurn. I will give you the veil vale of Arryn. And wham, bam, that is a Game of Thrones Tyrion 6. Maybe it didn't come through in my summary, I feel like, but it's a really fucking knockout of a chapter. Really, it's Tyrion's best chapter yet. And maybe, just maybe, I'm changing my mind a little. It may be my favorite Tyrion chapter in a Game of Thrones. We'll see when we get back to Tyrion 8. I do love a good battle chapter, as it were. So, Emmett, what do you think? Best Tyrion chapter so far? Best Tyrion chapter in Game of Thrones? Your thoughts?
1: Jeff Hartline changing his mind. Oh Perish the thought, folks. Ah, oh, I mean, I'm not changing my mind. I never change my mind. There we go. That's the man I know. <laughs> this is probably my favorite Tyrion chapter in a Game of Thrones. I love the last one in the eerie. And we have the Tywin introduction and the Battle of the Green Fork, as you said, coming up in later Tyrion chapters. But there's just something about the tone of Tyrion 6 that puts it over the top, or rather the tones. Because for me, this chapter is a great example of how to shift between tones. Mm. It starts off very jocular and fun with Tyrion and Bronn trading banter as they await the clans. It's that gallows humor of two men who know they're going to die and figure they may as well just rib each other while they wait. <laughs> then it turns very dramatic and ugly and sad with the Taisha backstory. Mm-hmm. And the confrontation with the clans that closes the chapter could be said to combine the two tones, as the dialogue is once again humorous, but the stakes have been raised considerably. I really love how Martin balances all this. It demonstrates how comfortable he is with Tyrion's headspace, that he feels he can pull this off within a chapter, and can. That he can have this, as you say, the most important, weighty, disturbing part of Tyrion's backstory in the same chapter as... Tyrion declaring that he's going to die with a maiden's mouth around his cock. You have to be a very particular kind of writer in a very particular kind of mood to make that work, and I think Martin pulls it off.
0: I think he pulls it off because Martin has said many, many times that Tyrion is his favorite point of view character, and he most resembles Tyrion's witticisms. He feels he most resembles Samuel Tarley in terms of his appearance and in terms of his bookishness, but he most resembles Tyrion in terms of his personality. And you could see where George is very comfortable in Tyrion's skin, Almost feels like he's comfortable in that skin because he is Tyrion, or he is Tyrion's personality, and that's com- that the ability to be comfortable in Tyrion is, is is so pivotal in how Martin relays relates this hugely important backstory, but also is able to like shift back and forth between the horror and the tragedy, and then get back to the humor, because that's it, it seems like the way that Martin might work through things in his life that he's able to kind of go back and forth and he utilizes humor and kind of minimalization as a way to kind of deal with some tragedies and kind of deal with some psychological traumas that maybe he he experienced i I mean i don't know i i don't know martin at any personal level but you could feel that he's very comfortable with Tyrion, and you do wonder whether he's comfortable with him and comfortable with this chapter which is a really hard chapter to write because he resembles the character the most
1: I agree completely. I think you can see Tyrion doing that. What we learn about Tyrion in this chapter is that all his jokes and barbs and sarcastic asides are really there to prevent him from having to deal with this. This is really what he doesn't want to think about. This is why he feels he needs to have armor. This is what's behind all his advice to Jon. This is the core, really, of his character in terms of what motivates him throughout the series. Even in his best moments in Clash of Kings, at his lowest moments in Dance with Dragons, this is what's driving him. And I think it's important that As you say, Martin feels a real affinity for Tyrion's dialogue and his internal voice, how he thinks through things, and that really becomes very enjoyable when he gets into power in Clash of Kings, but (laughs) it's important, I think, for Martin to establish this real dramatic weight behind it and to get you to understand why Tyrion feels the need to deal with the world this way, but... Before we get to any of that, as you said in your summary, we get this great scene with Bronn because, of course, the first issue that Tyrion Six has to settle is the question of his relationship with Bronn. This right. was kind of a dangling thread after the duel. You don't really know what these two men are going to make of each other, especially since they've now been both condemned to basically death by mm-hmm. Lysa and her cronies. I mean, Bronn saved Tyrion's life, but the author stresses repeatedly, this does not make them instant best friends forever, right. a la John saving Sam at Castle Black. Quite the opposite, as Bronn promptly threatens to abandon Tyrion to his death— <laughs> And the way Tyrion deals with this is he does not appeal to mercy. He does not say to Bronn, I'm helpless, you're leaving me to die, don't do that. He does not appeal to friendship. He does not say, you and me, buddy, we're, we're the same, we get each other, we're, we're, we work <laughs> out in the trenches, we're going to get through this together. He doesn't even appeal to what he appeals to later with the clansmen, like, fuck the veil, vale, fuck Lysa, let's spite them by surviving. That, even that's not his argument. Mm-hmm. His argument is, you're scum, so I can buy you. And it works. <laughs> it works. To give Tyrion credit... It works in the same way it worked with Mord and works with the Mountain Clans. Like, the reason Tyrion has this bribe-your-way-through-every-door approach to life is because it's never not worked for him as the son of Tywin Lannister.
0: Exactly. And while it's it's clear that the relationship is different in the books than in the show, what I like about it, though, is that Bronn seems to gravitate towards that honesty and kind of reciprocates it. You know, there's there's that sense, that, that back-and-forth dialogue where Bronn's like, well, I'll just fucking leave you, like, here, like, to die if you are so intent on dying, you know. That's fine by me. I'm I'm out of here, bro. Uh, but at the same time, Tyrion's like, Well, no, you're not out of here because your future success and wealth is based around me surviving. If you show up outside of the veil vale without me in tow, you're still low life scum. You're still the same person that you came to the veil vale in. You've gained nothing. With me, you can gain a whole lot. Gold, lands, titles.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that Tyrion is basically offering Braun upward mobility. It's very telling. He offers Braun not just gold and women, but land. Like, offering land is kind of a big deal. Like, that means you're you're, you're changing classes. You're not just getting gold. You're going to piss away in a week. Or a woman you're going to forget about the next day, knowing Braun. Offering him land, like, I'm sure Braun's ear is pricked up at that moment. He's like, land? This is interesting. Yeah. I never expected the possibility. Because as we see later in the series, he's very much interested in moving up the, the social ladder from knight to lord... Uh, first becoming Ser Bronn of the Blackwater, then becoming basically the Lord of Stokeworth. Yep. And it starts here, and Tyrion is specifically saying to Bronn, I'm going to give you this position, and the Starks wouldn't. The Starks would not do this for you, because the Starks like men like Jory and Roderick Cassell. They like noble, upstanding men who know their place and are there for the Starks and will fight and die for them. He has a specific image of Catelyn would have found a coin or two for you after this was all over. Right. She would have pressed it into your hand with some distaste. That's a wonderful little moment on Tyrion's part because that's I can absolutely see that happening. Catelyn cares about the men who died on the way to the Eyrie, as she says, the men who died in the Mountains of Moon. But she, you know, she wouldn't have been interested in keeping Bronn around in the household and allowing exactly. him to climb the ladder. Tyrion and Bronn are able to make that connection. I think it's important that because there's an honesty of purpose between them. Yes. That you won't find with the more haughty hypocritical nobles that we saw in the Vale. You can see that Tyrion seems to think he has something in common with Braun when he brings up how Braun was quick to silence Chiggin once he mm-hmm. was wounded and making noise when he brought the clansmen down. That's clearly that was an important moment for Tyrian in terms of him thinking, Ah, this is my kind of guy. <laughs> this is a guy I can work with, a very unsentimental man who's all about the bottom line. I can speak his language. I can speak the Lannister language with this man. We can share this cynicism. It's so interesting coming to this right after John 5, in which was such an optimistic chapter about John saying the realm is (laughs) going to come together like the medals in a maester's chain, and everything is just going to be great. And here's Tyrion going, no, that's not how any of this works. How this works is I have money. You don't. So you keep me alive. You get the money. I think we're done. I don't think Martin is endorsing this message as a way of life, but I think he is... Deliberately holding it up as a challenge to the kind of struggle John is facing. That this is this kind of cynicism is the kind of thing John's gonna have to confront and deal with along his, his leadership arc and characters like Daenerys will have to as well.
0: To me it feels like a contrast between two competing mindsets that George has as a writer and that he is a hopeless romantic. I mean, we you can see that in various points. Again, we saw that from Edder Ten for sure, in his Tower of Joy scene. But we also see that cynical side as well in George, where he's kind of the guy who was very hopeful of in the 1960s hippies movement and saw that as being the way to progress forward. And then saw the 1970s and 1980s kind of coming after the hippie movement and having a bit of a more cynical outlook about the outcomes that occurred from the 1960s. And we can see that in the character like Tyrion, where Tyrion is able to see through the bullshit of the nobility in the veil, and see through the bullshit of the chivalry, too. Again, I'm with you in that I don't think that that George is like, ah, well, you know, fuck romanticism and fuck all that sort of nice stuff. What he's saying there is that there is both exist and can exist in the same fictional
1: universes, both exist in the real world. And exist within the same person, as you said, the Faulkner line about the conflict within the human heart. We can see that struggle here between the Tyrion who shook John's hand and helped out Bran Versus the Tyrion who will kill Simon Silvertongue to keep Shea a secret. Like, those are both the same person. Exactly. And you can see Martin struggling and asking us to struggle with how that can be. And I completely agree that the portrait of the author you get from the series is someone who believed heavily in a series of ideals that came out in the kind of Vietnam civil rights generation and then felt kind of disillusioned by what happened in the 70s and the 80s and and the 90s. And I always think of uh, this line from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and I brought it up before, that when Hunter Thompson or his his author insert is talking about how you had, he's you know standing in Las Vegas, the Nevada desert and talking about how you had this wave of positivity and optimism coming out of California. And that if you stand in Las Vegas, you can see where that wave broke and rolled back. <laughs> and I feel like that's, that's kind of the mindset Martin is in when he approaches, uh, especially Tyrion, but a lot of characters is this kind of, this dream that died and how you how you reckon with that. And we talked about that with the last Ned chapter and the, the Tower of Joy and how that's the moment where kind of Ned's dream died. And that's a subject Martin is clearly very interested in. And yes. Yeah, not to armchair uh, psychologize the man, but you got to imagine it's in part because he went through moments like that in his own life. It's, I like that in the background of the scene, you have this nice bit of business about setting a fire that really kind of grounds their dynamic and how it's evolving and how it ties into the feudal structure that... What Tyrion needs is a replacement for the guys who used to make his fires, because he doesn't know how. He says, "You know, Mar- Marek used to take care of this for me, and Marek's dead now, so I need a new guy." Bronn, do you want to be that guy? And, and Bronn needs someone who will pay him to make that fire. He needs. So you can see, like Martin, using the fire as like a as a way to exemplify how this relationship is going to work. That when when Bronn says, finally, just Bronn says at one point, just give me the flints, give me the wood, I'll start the fire. Tyrion, stop trying. And that symbolizes him accepting Tyrion's offer. That's him saying, okay.
0: Him setting up that fire and the cold night that surrounds them then leads to that pivotal moment in this chapter, which kind of it really comes out of nowhere. I mean, we, we talked about this in pre-production, but there's no hint whatsoever in Tyrion's first five chapters. And maybe maybe I'm wrong. Somebody will probably come in and say that we're wrong. But there's no hint as far as I remember in, in reading Tyrion's first five chapters that he was previously
1: married, that he has a long... Standing trauma associated with his youth here. Yeah, we haven't really seen any explicit hints in this direction before. It comes up in this chapter, and the only tension that kind of does exist going into this scene with the Braun relationship resolved. Tyrion has his next step on the table. As you say, I have some questions that I want answering concerning a certain dagger. The, the pressing question remaining as you come out of this scene is why is Tyrion like this? <laughs> why are you like this? Why you like this? What made him so cynical about everything and so determined that the only relationships he can have are those mediated by Lannister gold? I mean, you can sense a relief when he says, Bronn, you're scum. There's no honor in you. You just want the gold. Tyrion kind of likes that because it makes it simple for him. Right. He can detach himself. It's very clear. So why is he? How, what got him that way? What, what made him so convinced he cannot be loved or want to love? And we get our answer in the form of the Taisha backstory, which, as we've said, has to be talked about with precision because it's a brutally difficult scene to read but it really couldn't be more important to both Tyrion's character and the themes of the series as a whole. This is Tyrion's equivalent to Jamie's story about Eris and the wildfire. In both cases, you have a Lannister man unburdening himself to a ferocious fighter keeping him safe. Brienne for honor, Bronn for money, but their names even kind of sounded like Brienne and Bronn. Despite not knowing them that well, just out of the need to get a story off their chest that fundamentally changes how we see them as a character.
0: The story that he tells is set up really, really well by the atmosphere that George provides there. Again, you have the fire roaring, you've got the night air... You have the darkness there and the smoke from the fire becomes pivotal for a portion of the story that Tyrion tells. But Emmett, why don't you walk us through how George segues, him, segues the readers into the story?
1: Yeah, it's a campfire story at first. Like You think this is going to be kind of fun or bawdy or innocent because this tone of the scene with Tyrion and Braun is very fun and jocular, like I said. And Martin segues into the story with a discussion of a song, The Seasons of My Love. Of course he does, because that's how he always <laughs> frames the loss of innocence. The loss of your song is the loss of your innocence. We've mostly been discussing the, the loss of innocence theme regarding the young Starklings so far, regarding Sansa and Arya and Jon and Bran, but this is really where it starts to apply to the somewhat older Tyrion. He's already gone through his scales falling from the eyes moment, and now he's looking back on it. And yeah, what really wakes this work emotionally, as I always say, is the precise structure of it. As a first time reader, you don't know at first that this is a sad story when Tyrion starts telling it. The only clue is the little detail right before he starts. It was a cold it was a clear, cold night and the stars shone down upon the mountains as bright and merciless as truth. Hmm. Merciless as truth is kind of a giveaway that this is not gonna be a happy story, but your first yeah. time through, you're you're not noticing that. At first this is just the heroic romantic story of the Lannister boys protecting a vulnerable young woman from her cruel attackers and Jamie is all in the lather to hunt them down to demonstrate that the Lannisters won't allow such things. It's very chivalric. It's mm-hmm. it's very fantasy esque. It's designed to sweep you up. It seems like a parallel to the Littles' line in *A Storm of Swords* about how the Stark in Winterfell is a promise that a maiden can stroll down the road naked and not be harmed. Mm-hmm. You can see kind of the Lannisters at the, at the story starts kind of uphold that. Jamie is going to go right off to deliver these men justice, and Tyrion's going to keep Tysha's safe. As the story starts, we're like, "Yay, the Lannister boys! They're heroes!" But it gets worse it does
0: that and i think you're you're right is in that you have the framework operating as kind of the chivalric romantic story of two boys defending a maiden from harm which you know seems like the start of a good story right you you you'd imagine in a traditional fantasy setting that this would then lead to an epic romance between Tyrion and taisha that would result in them getting married and having children someday down the road after many numerous adventures together and things like that of course again why Tyrion is so cynical, though, is because the story doesn't unfold like that.
1: It's interesting how Martin builds up Tywin in the series. We He hadn't mentioned a couple of times, pretty much always in a negative context, but we're going to be meeting him in the flesh for the first time in Tyrion's next chapter. Mm-hmm. So it's really telling that Martin frames it this way, that he tells this horror story where Tywin is the monster that ruins everything. Martin wants us to keep this story in mind when we meet Tywin, and he wants us to contrast Tywin's brutality, as you say, with the romantic dream that Tyrion was engaging in. He confesses to having fallen in love with Tysha, and I love Braun responds, you? <laughs> like, of course, because he's responding to the Tyrion that exists now, right? the cynical, sarcastic Tyrion who just called him scum. That guy fell in love randomly from a chance encounter on the road. That seems someone like the Tyrion we know now, and that's because of what happened, as mm-hmm. you say, because of how the song went, how the, how the third and fourth verses went after these exactly. nice romantic first two verses. And the first sign to a first-time reader that it all went wrong is when Tyrion says that he married her, because we're in the present day, and we have seen no mention of a lady, Tysha Lannister. Yeah. She's not around. So that's when you know, oh, no, something horrible clearly happened here. Again, it's like the Jamie's monologue in the bathtub when he's talking about Eris when you gradually realize what it is that Eris is doing and just your skin starts to crawl. It's that same structure, that gradual horror where Martin doesn't hit you with the reveal about Taisha right away and then fill you in the details. He's gradually pulling you into what happened and it's very effective.
0: Yeah. It's, it's classic storytelling on Martin's part in that he's not, he's allowing for a slow burn. I mean, even though this, this story takes all of about three paragraphs in this chapter is a it is still a slow burn in that we have the setup done really well by George, where George has uh, basically has the romantic overtone set up first, and then slowly subverts it with a mention of that he took Taisha to wife, and bronze being like, "You, you fell in
1: love, you, a Lannister of Cashleay Rock, married someone." Yeah, Tyrion has this. He has this tiny little oasis of happiness with Taisha, a cottage made of song that he, he thinks about several times throughout the series. And what's, it's heartbreaking because it's so fragile. You can imagine this tiny little space, these two young people just hiding from the world, and you know it's not going to last, but that makes it all the more powerful. There's this line that comes to mind from the greatest novel of all time, Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, <laughs> about two characters who are kind of having this secret affair in the midst of, of the Blitz in London. And the quote is, it is marginal, hungry, chilly. Most times they're too paranoid to risk a fire, just like Tyrion Braun. But it's something they want to keep so much that to keep it they will take on more than propaganda has ever asked them for. They were in love. Fuck the war." (laughs) And that's what Tyrion and Tysha had. They had something they made together that was completely organic, that wasn't a marriage contract set up for them, that wasn't their father shoving Tysha into the local boy's arms just for convenience's sake or because she got pregnant, or all the other kind of cynical sad stories we hear about romance and sex throughout the story. This was something real. This was the real deal. The punchline to this whole scene is, because I was a Lannister, and worth more. Yeah. That's what Tywin wants Tyrion to take away from this. That's what Martin wants us to take away from this. That's Tywin's mindset that leads him to do this to his daughter-in-law because he thinks he is worth more. He and Tyrion are worth more than her, basically another species as far as he's concerned. And because of that, he has the right or duty to, I guess in his mind, to inflict this unimaginable atrocity and just like put yourself in Tysha's shoes. Like you spend this couple of weeks with this man who comes out of nowhere and saves you and you fall in love and you have this life you never thought was possible. And then some men in crimson cloaks show up at your door and drag you away to the barracks. And then you sit there cold and frightened and alone. And then your husband walks in and for a second. You think it's going to be okay. And then everyone else walks in behind him. And the moment she realized what was going to happen, Mm. I just can't imagine what that moment must have been like. And just... Just the rage and sorrow that comes from that. And it it fundamentally broke Tyrion on some level. It convinced him that he can't be loved and that everything is forever mediated by class and wealth. This is the biggest brick in his wall. Yeah. Even the cold hard braun is horrified. He stops scraping his sword, he just kinda of stares at Tyrion and eventually just says, Yeah, I would've I would've killed the man who did that to me. Yeah,
0: I mean I was thinking that there's a there's there's kind of a parallel between Daenerys' house with the red door and Tyrion's cottage where he had Taisha, and that there was that one moment both these characters look back on and they see that as the one moment in their life where they had happiness. And Daenerys is always trying to go back to the house with the red door and always feels that she's being prevented from going back to a place where she felt safe and secure and loved. Tyrion isn't necessarily in the same mindset of trying to go back to the cottage but that moment there serves a similar thematic point for Tyrion in that it causes him to know when the dream was broken. For, for Daenerys, obviously, she was cast out of the House of the Red Door at some level. Of course, some of that's a little bit ambiguous as to what exactly happened there. For Tyrion, it's, it's much, much worse than simply being thrown out of, out of the cottage. I mean, he's thrown out, he's dragged out, his wife is dragged out, and then, and then he watches as his wife is gang-raped by his father's guardsmen. And you don't know how
1: many guardsmen it is, you don't know... The, the just the image of the coins spilling through her hands like he has to stop telling the story at that point because it's just so horrifying and he's flashing back to it and what it feels to me like is it's an image of sacrifice that taisha is being sacrificed yeah. on the on the altar of tywin's pride that he is determined that she has to go and she has to bear this hideous burden and her well-being has to be destroyed and, and the ideal of love itself that Tyrion is expressing with his song and his memory that tywin is sacrificing that for what i mean f- for what pragmatic purpose to teach Tyrion? a sharp lesson as he says about Joffrey it didn't what it led to was Tyrion being determined to kill his father yeah right after the story he has the sky salt dream where this time he was the jailer not the prisoner big with a strap in his hand and he was hitting his father driving him back toward the abyss that's what he wants now he wants to be big and he wants to kill his father that's what all of Tywin's machinations led to that's that's the payoff and the mindset behind it that Tywin is will go on to exemplify throughout the series when he hangs masha heddle in Tyrion's next chapter when he inflicts Gregor gain upon the women of the riverlands when he has ala Yaya whipped and turned out the door because he thinks she slept with Tyrion. it's it's just a pattern and it's it's as you say i think it's meant to make us hate tywin lannister yeah and i think it doesn't i think it doesn't a very effective job at that
0: whenever someone brings up the idea of tywin is this practical machiavellian doing things for the greater good you're like the None of this is for the greater good. None of this is Machiavellian. None of this is consequentialist. This is Tywin being a hypocritical asshole, not just a hypocritical asshole, but also just an asshole just in general, just completely, utterly evil, ruthless, and horrific to his own son. I mean, regardless of whether he actually is his own son or not. I mean, (laughs) we've had the discussion in the past, but for the sake of the story, even to his own son. And, you know, Martin has said that he was setting up Tyrion's eventual killing of Tywin Lannister back in a Game of Thrones, and I definitely think that dream that he has where he's hitting his father and driving him back from the abyss, uh, driving back towards the abyss, rather, is definitely part of that foreshadowing that Martin is integrating towards, you know, in the end, Tywin Lannister did not shit gold because, of course, that also comes up, and I believe it's in the next chapter, of in, in Tyrion's next chapter, maybe the one after that, I'm not sure. But at the same time, we do have to kind of take... A, a closer look at Tyrion's conduct here. And I, I fully, from, from the outset, Tyrion plays the role of a bit of a victim here, right? But however, and however, and, and you know, this is going to be contra- controversial, so so bear with me. Tyrion's recollection, recollection of the event, as is is horrifying as it is, perhaps doesn't speak fully to the horror of what's going on in Tyrion's head at the time. As Because he, ta- he tells another slightly different version of the story. to Well, he tells the same version to Shay, but he has a thought that he doesn't speak out loud, but it's very important. he's So the line from A Clash of Kings is, and to take her one last time after the rest were done, one last time with no trace of love or tenderness remaining. So you remember her as she truly is, Tywin said, and I should have defied him, but my cock betrayed me, and I did what I was bid, and I did as I was bid. So... In Tyrion's later recollection, it wasn't him being forced to participate in Taisha's rape. It was that his cock betrayed him. Now, I I guess it's important to note in that kind of second wretched telling that Tyrion is indicating that he has a choice in the matter. How much of it was actually a choice and how much of it is his guilt causing him to think that it's a choice when it really wasn't is, I don't know, I guess it's at least mentioning as a potential consideration but you really can't excuse Tyrion's role necessarily. He was a willing participant in Tysha's rape. There's no there's no indication from Tyrion's point of view, either in this chapter or when he tells the story to Shea in A Clash of Kings, that he couldn't have just walked away and said, no, I won't take part in this. He basically said that he had sexual desire for
1: Tysha, and he participated in her rape. One of the takeaways from this is that what Tywin was trying to do to Tyrion worked at some level because Tyrion does think about Taisha this way. Yeah. And and kinda clearly did in the moment if he was still willing to have sex with her, even after watching this horror inflicted upon her. Like the mental transition had been made. Tyrion thinks of her that way and has dehumanized her that way, just as Tywin wanted. And Tywin is Tyrion's abuser, but Tyrion has become Tywin in a lot of ways. Yes. In terms of his mindset, in terms of his actions. And so you have a position where Tyrion is certainly a victim of Tywin, but also complicit in the abuse of Tysha. And so that's where you get to Aunt Jenna saying that Tyrion is Tywin's son, not mm-hmm. you, the Jamie, And Tyrion saying to Tywin in the latter's final moments that I'm you writ small. Mm-hmm. That's what makes this kind of, I think, as powerful as it is on a tragic element that is, as much as Tyrion and Tywin would like to distance themselves from each other, they are at some level the same person.
0: It, it, it's further like... Makes it even worse when you think about Tyrion's arc in A Dance with Dragons and how dark it gets. In that, the reveal that Taisha was not a sex worker, the reveal that it wasn't that Jamie had paid for her services, that leads to Tyrion becoming ever more like Time and Lannister, whether it's raping a sex worker and so Horace, whether it's thinking if I was in charge of this battle at the Battle of Fire, I would have poisoned all the wells. It's, it's just so brutal that the reveal that Tysha's backstory was exactly what Tyrion had originally suspected to be but then gone on believing for some 13 or 14 years, believing the story that Jaime and Tywin had told him, that that then leads to Tyrion becoming so much more Tywin, just makes it ever more heartbreaking what happens to him in A Dance of Dragons and what will likely continue into the Winds of Winter.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And as we shift out of that devastating scene, the the mountain men show up. It kind of feels like a flashback to the prologue in that we have shadows emerging from the woods to surround our valiant, foolish swordsmen who are (laughs) alone in nature. In terms of their connection to the larger themes, though, as we'll get more into in Tyrion's next chapter, they exist completely outside the social structure that traps trapped Tyrion and Taisha, that Tyrion has kind of manipulated to get Bronn on his side. They're outside that. They have a different structure. Our mountain, our goat. That's their social (laughs) structure. If you're on their land, you and your stuff are basically their property as far as they're concerned. And they've had to kind of develop that because they're just holding on to these last bits of territory against the far more powerful knights of the Vale. that's why that they have that line the half man would pay us with our own coin because as far as they're concerned there's this direct connection between the land and their property
0: i also think it's not so dissimilar from what the nobility think of in terms of their land their mountain their goat everything belongs to them i mean we in the prologue again will is sent to the wall because he kills a malister deer in malister's own woods, sort of thing so everything in those woods belongs to the lord who owns the property or owns the land so to speak the mountain clansmen are not all that different i mean as much as they're portrayed here as kind of barbaric and kind of backwards they have a their their mentality is more based around the collective sharing of goods and property as opposed to simply a small upper crust of the society that has the ability to claim everything that is theirs that's within the property that that ends up even like a deer walking into their woods as they're part of their property. So it's a different structure, but not all that dissimilar from the nobility of Westeros.
1: That's a terrific point. It's the the mountain clans have the preservation of the commons on their side, whereas the nobles are fencing everything out, as of course happened in real world English history that in part Tolkien was responding to with parts of Lord of the Rings. But yeah, I, I don't mean to suggest that the mountain clansmen are just, you know, sitting around holding hands. They, def, they definitely still have kind of an intense martial structure going, yes. as they, they have to in their environment. You could almost think of the claim our mountain, our goat is just a very stripped down version of the nobles' arguments that like beneath all the pretty words and clothes, this is how the errands function with the giant's lance. Our mountain, our goat. Mm-hmm. Tyrion has to try to save his and Bronn's life from them. He falls back on the Lannister golden name that he was just bemoaning when he was kind of telling the Tysha story, presenting it as a the Lannister name as a trap because I was a Lannister and worth more. And that's what brought me into the situation. That's prevented me from being happy with my wife, my name, and my family. But in this situation, when he's up against the clans, he's all too willing to use that Lannister golden name. Those are his only tools. So that there's no real way out for Tyrion here. It's like he can't he can't do what like Robert can do and write off and be a sellsword because he's a dwarf. Mm-hmm. So he has no choice but to stay within the Lannister wheelhouse. But that same Lannister wheelhouse is what prevents him from being happy. So there's really no exit for him.
0: Yeah. So Tyrion promises gold, weapons, lances, swords, armor, all that sort of stuff. And then he promises the Veil of Arryn to the mountain clansmen. And, you know, much of this chapter, in my, in my mind, is, is Martin's continued expansion and window into Tyrion as a grayer character than the one we knew in his first four chapters, who was, who was concerned with bastards, cripples, and broken, broken things. Tyrion five, of course, we saw Tyrion using his status as the son of a great lord to get himself favorable circumstances where he can prove his innocence, because he was innocent, but still, at the same time, the small folk don't have the ability to call for a trial by combat in order to get out of the Tyrion 6 though here we're getting Tyrion promising the mountain clansmen weapons, the gold and the veil of Arryn and that should kind of make us do a double take because we're seeing another set of Tyrion. His pride was wounded in the veil both by the circumstances in which he made it up the mountain, remember that Bronn had carried Tyrion up the giant slants, but also in how Lysa and the rest of those monkey-moron idiot Vale nobles treated him because they treated him like shit. So now he's willing to arm a violent faction to overthrow the existing political order in the Vale to satisfy his need for vengeance. And, you know, I, I don't know, Emmett, I, I I really don't think this was Tyrion just kind of throwing the dice here when he told them that he would give them the Vale of Arryn. My read is that he... Kind of already had the clansmen in his pocket, so to speak, with his promise of golden weapons. Tyrion is promising the clansmen the veil is kind of Tyrion's vindictive side coming out. And that's going to have a, and has had in the main series, and probably will continue to have consequences down the road.
1: It's interesting because Martin is, on the one hand, setting up both Tyrion and the Mountain Clans as underdogs here. Mm-hmm. Like, Tyrion men to get out of his unjust accusation with just his wits and a roll of the dice, and he's got this sellsword on his side, and the Mountain Clans have been treated very badly by the Knights of the Vale. So part of you wants to cheer for them as underdogs in fantasy. That's kind of what you're instinctively trained to do. But yeah, if you look at the actual impact of Tyrion's actions and what he's proposing to do and why he's proposing to do it, it is just another example of... Lords working out their private vendettas on the bodies and land of people lower than them on the pyramid. So, as much as we might enjoy Tyrion's tone in the scene and how he's getting the mountain clans on his side and how fun that is, if you step back and think about the consequences, as you say, it, it forms a much different picture. And that leads us into our foreshadowing and groundwork section because this does have consequences that play out a little bit down the line and I'm sure will in the future.
0: Yeah. So, in Clash, we start to see some of the fallout from Tyrion's decision to arm the mountain clansmen when Littlefinger reports in a small council session about what's going on in the Vale. So it's, Lysa has woes of her own. Clansmen raiding out of the mountains of the moon in greater numbers than ever before. And better armed. Distressing, said Tyrion, who had armed them. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great line. I mean, I, we both laugh at it. And really, I don't really have any love for Lysa. I mean, but who are really the victims of Tyrion arming the mountain clansmen? It's, it's, it's not lysine or toadies. They can sit high atop the giant's lance doing their foolishness and their fool's turnies in the eerie. The actual victims here are the small folk and the travelers who are moving through the high road. And they're the people that are casualties to Tyrion's need for vengeance. Because we find out in the Storm of Swords, when Arya travels with Sandra Clegane up near to the high road, one of the villagers tells them that, quote, there's the clans as well. The burned men are fearless since Timid One-Eye came back from the war. And half a year ago, Gunther, son of Gurn, led the stonecrows down on a village not eight miles from here. They took every woman and every scrap of grain and killed half the men. They have steel now, good swords and male hauberks. And they watched the high road, the stonecrows, the milksnakes, the sons of the mist, all of them. There's also the theory, too, that Em and I are both fond of, that there will be an attack in the winter, in the Vale at some point by the mountain clansmen, when they try and take the prize that was promised them by Tyrion. And <laughs> again... It, the consequences and the casualties of this, I mean, there might be some veiled nobles that end up getting killed by the clansmen in the Winds of Winter, but who really is the ones who are suffering? It's very much like what Jorah told, Dan- told Daenerys back in Danny 3 when the High Lords play, go- play their Game of Thrones, right? I mean, that's essentially what's going on here. Tyrion is utilizing the lower members of the pyramid, like you said, in order to satisfy the vengeance that he wants, but the casualties are just the small folk, the people that didn't do anything to have it come to them but they're still having it come to them all the same.
1: Yeah, Tyrion is not talking about returning the Vale to its rightful owners. He's not even saying we're going to turn the lords of the Vale out of their castles and replace them with Lannister lords. What he says in his next chapter is he wants to reduce the Vale of Errand to a smoking wasteland. He wants to destroy it and burn it down, all for the sake of feeling cathartic about what Lysa did to him. And yeah, that's very worrying, especially as Tyrion's mood starts to turn darker in A Dance with Dragons. And speaking of things that might befall Tyrion in later books, <laughs> there's also a little tidbit in this chapter that is wonderful evidence for a theory by our, our friend Hamfast, theory as quiet lion theory, the idea that Tyrion is at some point in the series going to get his tongue cut out. Hmm. There's a lot of hints at that, as we will get into in the later books, but one that comes up here is when Tyrion and Bronn are talking and Tyrion says something sassy. Bronn snorted, you have a bold tongue, little man. One day, someone is like to cut it out and make you eat it. And Tyrion responds, everyone tells me that. <laughs> So we'll, we'll see if that comes to pass, but if it does come to pass, we're going to look back on that moment as a giant red neon sign pointing it out.
0: i mean, not fun if it happens in the winds of winter, but it's going to be fun in terms of its, its outcome from this this small amount of foreshadowing. And uh, Hamfast, otherwise known as John, his theory is excellent. And eventually, Emma and I will have our, our knockdown, drag out fight about it because we have different ideas about the theory itself, which is fine. I mean, we can disagree. Amicably. From as, time to time. From time to time. I mean, we agree about like 98, 98%, 99% of the story, but we're very uh, congenial types of people. So we, we're always about congenial disagreement here. That's what's important. Get a job,
1: hippie. Anyway, <laughs> other nice little bit of foreshadowing in the Tyrion Braun conversation comes when Tyrion says, I've no doubt you'd betray me as quick as you did Lady Stark if you saw a profit in it. If the day ever comes when you're tempted to sell me out, remember this, Braun. I'll match their price, whatever it is. Now, it's debatable whether Braun ever really betrays Tyrion. Yeah. It's unreasonable, really, to expect him to go up against Gregor Clegane. He doesn't testify against Tyrion at his trial. But certainly, Bronn abandons Tyrion. Sure. And the reason is because there is one person whose price Tyrion can't match, and that's Tywin, because all of Tyrion's money comes <laughs> from Tywin. So again, we get back to those issues we were discussing earlier about how Tyrion is, on the one hand, powerful and can bribe a lot of people and can talk his way out of situations with gold, but the gold doesn't really belong to him. Right. And when he brings up the Tywin, hey, can I be the heir to Casterly Rock? which would mean the gold would belong to him. Tywin says no in no uncertain terms. And we're going to close off the episode this week by talking a little bit more about Taisha. One question that has come up repeatedly in the fandom ever since the Game of Thrones is, will we ever meet Taisha in the narrative? Is she yeah. going to return in the present day? Is she the kind of backstory character that is bound to pop up in the modern day at some point, like Howland Reed? Or is she the kind that remains firmly in the backstory, like, uh, is Chloe listening? She's not listening? Okay, a Dane. Is she like a Dane in that regard?
0: I don't know. I mean, there's so many ugly, bad theories about who Taisha might be, whether she took on an assumed or hidden identity, and the big one being that Taisha is the sailor's wife. Don't you love that theory? It's one of my favorites.
1: I'm less than fond of it, I have to say. So Arya <laughs> meets this character in Braavos who calls herself the sailor's wife. She's one of the prostitutes, and she makes all her Johns marry her before she sleeps with them, and she has a blondish child whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, but I know it begins with an L. Yeah. It's very lannister E. It's Lannel or Lanerla or, you know, something yeah. very Lannister-ish. And I can see why people might think she's she's Tysha, but I've always thought it much more likely given the sailor in Sailor's Wife that the Lannister in question is Tyrion's favorite uncle, Jarrion. Yep. Uh, who sailed off to Valyria to find the Lannister sword, War and never came back. You do have the connection of pers- someone marrying her before sleeping with her. That is definitely a connection to Tysha. But g- given how she's described in terms of her age and... Th- that her true husband was lost across the sea, it seems much more likely that it's it's a different Lannister, that it's and who got the Lannister seed into that particular bloodline.
0: I agree, and I also think that if Tysha would appear in anyone's storyline, it would have to be Tyrion's because there's no real narrative payoff in having this random character show up, or not random, but having Tysha show up in a completely unrelated storyline because there's no emotional connection and emotional outcome that can be determined from Arya meeting this person. Now, I, I mean, if, if George is just utilizing this as kind of like a wink nod, like, hey, this is this is Taisha, then sure. But when I read this chapter and reread it a couple times for this podcast, it, it really didn't... It, it, it's such an emotionally gripping and horrifying moment in Tyrion's storyline that it, if she shows up, it can't be in anyone else's storyline, in my opinion, than Tyrion's. And Tyrion... Of course, for his part, after it's revealed that Taisha was not a sex worker, that she voluntarily married him, that this sends him hurtling towards, almost towards the black and towards the towards the cliff, perhaps even goes off the cliff, because he starts wondering wherever whores go in A Dance with Dragons.
1: This kind of huge misunderstanding on Tyrion's part, where he takes his father's final words seriously, as if they were a clue to where Taisha is, and that's in part, of course, because he's drunk and traumatized and isn't really thinking clearly through most of dance, but, of course, it doesn't reveal anything about Taisha because, as you say, she wasn't actually a sex worker. And because what, that line, wherever whores go, all that really reveals is that Tywin doesn't think of the lower class, again, as humans. That he just doesn't—like, what? They have a life when they leave the room? When they're done serving me? I don't care about that. Wherever they go, where wherever they live, it's yeah. just not a concern to him. He doesn't have an answer to that question, and Tyrion doesn't either. Until, in A Dance with Dragons, he starts getting a taste of how the other half lives, how it feels like to be a poor dwarf, especially when he meets Penny. And it's noticeable in Dance that the wherever whores go mantra from his mind kind of vanishes at that point. Because he's yep. realized it's it doesn't actually mean anything. And I think that gets at why I don't think Taish going to come back. I think she faded into the crowd and won't be seen again. And that I think we're supposed to be left with that realization that Tyrion is coming to that there's a certain universality to Taisha's story that so many people that Tyrion sees, that Arya sees have gone through some version of Taisha's story. Maybe not that high up the noble chain, maybe not as specifically traumatizing, but so many people that we've met have kind of run afoul of the noble class and then vanished back into the crowd. And I, I think, I think Tysha is just going to be another one of those. I think I... What I think is that Tyrion has to be able to learn to live with himself and live in a world in which he never sees Taisha again. And he has yeah. to live with what he did to her. And he doesn't get a resolution. I think, for me, that feels more emotionally in line with how Martin is writing Tyrion's character at this point. But I could be wrong.
0: I mean, I could definitely see that. It's not It's not that I want Taisha to come back in the story. as this kind of, like, dramatic surprise. Like, oh, my God, it's Taisha here in the story. What I want... If Tysha comes back, and, and I don't know that she will, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence one way or the other, but if she comes back, what I'd like to see it is have Tyrion be faced with the stark emotional consequences that he has to actually realize what he did to Taisha. Because where, where do Horses go? Where do Horses go in A Dance with Dragons? It symbolizes Tyrion, part of Tyrion's longing for that past that he has that has completely vanished at that point in the story. If he comes to the point where he meets up with Taisha at some juncture in the story, he has to have the the consequence meted out that where it led him to was a very dark place and where it led him to was the destruction of, the, of this girl at the behest of the nobility. Now, George R. R. Martin in 2015 said that we will find out, quote, where whores go when he was being interviewed by some Croatian fans over Skype. I don't know whether this alludes to Tyrion will meet Taisha again, or whether it's more a thematic touch about that Tyrion will discover the location. I I mean, the, the, the conversation was kind of, I don't know if it was tongue-in-cheek or not, the fans had asked him something like where, that they were wondering where whores go so they could go there too, and sort of some sort of thing like that, and they're... George was kind of like, oh, we'll find that on the dance in, in the winds of winter. So, again, I don't know that it would pan out for Tyrion meeting Tysha. But if it does, I really want it to be a really soul sucking, destructive moment for Tyrion, where he sees the consequence of who of what happened back in the day and the person he became, and sees the impact that it had on someone else besides him. And you know, to be fair, we do see some of. Tyrion's mentality changes when he meets Penny, who, of course, is Tysha's daughter, right?
1: And that's what I've always felt. If you need a sympathetic character to keep these themes in Tyrion's story and reflect how far he's fallen, I feel like that's what Penny's there to do. Yeah. And the fact that Penny exists and is so prominent Tyrion storyline makes me feel less likely to see Tysha because I feel Penny is in part playing the role Tysha would play yeah. if she showed back up in Tyrion's storyline. But as you say, there is a theory which I think is certainly more possible than the Sailor's Wife theory, which is that Penny is Tyrion's daughter by Tysha, but we're going to save our major discussion of that until we actually get to a dance with dragons and meet penny because there's definitely some interesting evidence in favor of that and that could certainly blow things wide open dramatically if Tyrion ever finds that out.
0: So stay tuned to 2023 when we get to Penny and Tyrion's relationship.
1: So I
0: think that wraps us up for a game of thrones Tyrion 6. Thank you everyone for listening to us. We appreciate all of your ears as well as your feedback. You, can, you listen to your podcasts. We always try to read the ratings and stuff like that. So we appreciate all of the ones you've given already. And if you haven't
1: yet, please rate us. It helps people find us. Yes, indeed. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash I A F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, asoiaf or shoot us an email at I A F at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me on Twitter at
0: on Twitter, Brennan Pish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com So, join us next time as we're finally introduced to the Iron Throne, the actual Iron Throne, not just the concept, the actual Iron Throne itself. And we're pleased to announce that we'll be doing it alongside our special guest and our Senpei,
1: Stephen Atwell, and
0: Game of Thrones editor.
1: I've loved Stephen Atwell's writing about *A Song of Ice and Fire for a very long time, so I'm very excited to have him on, particularly talking about a chapter that deals heavily with the politics of the Iron Throne and how Ned uses his job as hand. We thought that would be the perfect chapter to have him on. So hope you like it as much as we will, guys. And thank you so much for listening to the Game of Thrones Tyrion 6. See you next time. Bye.